Hello, friends, and welcome to Ill Natured, a true crime podcast. This is Michelle. And I'm Alyssa. happy to be here today. We're glad that you all got the last um, episode that we recorded two hours before. That was a little stressful, guys. The remote recording was good, though, we decided, because we didn't have the kids in the background and the husbands awake. And you It know, was pleasant. It was pleasant. Yeah. It was just a little time crunch, a little stressful. Yeah. Not edited very well, but it's fine. It's out there. Y'all got your fix for the week. And so. lots of people have listened to it. That is true. That is true. So, but don't don't judge us. Don't judge us by that. Uh, we hope that you you came back and you're ready for this week's case. And Alyssa has a case, and she's being real secretive about it. So, I have no idea what's going on here. And that's the truth. The suspense is a lot. So, this week I was determined to try and stay away from an unsolved case or a case that kind of involved children because that was literally all I've been doing probably. It's heavy. Yeah, so I was trying to get out of that at least for an episode. Um, And this is by no means a happy story, unfortunately. I mean, you are listening to true crime people, but that's right. There are no children. Well, just pause. I think we should do a Christmas eat well. It was actually a suggestion from one of our listeners okay. that we do a Christmassy um, episode. Um, describe a Christmassy episode singing Christmas caroling. Well, I mean, we could carol. No, hey, I love to carol. You heard me. But, like, I don't know. We'll just have to be thinking about it. Because she said she'd love a. Christmassy episode. Like a special. We'll be thinking about it. Okay. Maybe a little bit of definition on that Christmassy episode. Like what are you necessarily thinking? Well, I mean we can we can we can think of something. Okay. Well okay. I'll I'll get on that. Alright. How about that? Sounds good. Um but I do want to give you guys a trigger warning because today's case is important but it deals with domestic violence and domestic abuse situations. Um so but like I said this is an important case because if we can point out these red flags then maybe more women will not fall victim to situations right. such as these. For sure. Um we understand if you want to come back next week if this topic is a little too much for your ears. I, I think if you've ever been through, from what I've heard and read, if you've ever been through physical abuse, spousal abuse, whatever, it's hard. It's very hard. Oh, yeah. Well, today we're going to be talking about Anne Marie Fahey. Now... That name is familiar to me. 
Okay. Okay, well, I was going to say that this is a very, very known, well-known case, so. It's familiar, but I know nothing. Well, let me tell you. Tell me. Anne-Marie Fahey was born on January 27, 1966, in Wilmington, Delaware, and was the youngest out of six children. Four brothers and one sister. They were a very tight-knit family who originally immigrated to the United States from Galway, Ireland. Galway, Ireland. Um, her father, Robert, was an insurance salesman, and her mother, Kathleen, was a secretary at DuPont before she got married. Now, Kathleen was introduced to Robert, who was seven years older than her, by the soon-to-be mayor of Wilmington, Bill McLaughlin. They would marry, and Kathleen would quit her job to be a housewife of sorts and take care of the six children they went on to have. Mm -hmm. The family was not rolling in the dough by any means, but they lived in a nice little house, and both adults, you know, they seemed to be comfortable. Right. Now, both of them did enjoy a few adult beverages here and there, um, and, but... Whatever. That's just a little tidbit right. to drop in there because it comes back kind of a little bit later on. Uh -huh. um, all the children were good students. They were athletic, and Anne-Marie herself played hockey and basketball. She was very outgoing as a child, and she was said she enjoyed doing impressions of people a lot. So she would, like, study people's mannerisms and then went on to copy them and impress them with the impression she did. Love it. So, yeah, she's, like, very, like, kooky and kind of, like, it. outgoing me, like that. Me as a, me as a child. Like, yeah, that's you now. <laughs> Still. Yes. Um, and the family was very religious. They went to Mass every Sunday. And even though they were not rich with money, they were very rich in love, as, um, you know, it is said. That's um, but so unfortunately, bad things happen to good people. Yes, they do. So, in 1974, Kathleen was diagnosed with lung cancer, and only eight months later, she would die. No. Now, Anne-Marie was only nine years old when, when her mother died, and that would send her father into a downward spiral. Now, even though he drank a lot before Kathleen's death, he really, really drowned in it afterwards and never really recovered from it. Their father actually quit working, and that really affected the family, as you can imagine, because if the only adult quits working, I mean, what are the children going to do? I mean, some of her siblings were um, teenagers, I believe, and I think they ended up trying to pick up little small jobs to help out, but right, they couldn't but do much. A household? Right. That's sad. Sometimes the family would go without food, hot water, and electricity due to their father not working anymore. Around 12 years old, Anne-Marie would have to go to school early to shower in the locker room because there was no hot water in the winter. Mm. Their maternal grandmother drove from Pennsylvania once a week to help out, but the children ended up basically taking care of themselves. I mean, you know, like once a week wasn't much. Not the children never knew what to expect out of Robert. He was always drunk. He was always sad. You know, some days he was completely out of it, just 
spaced out and then other days he would just flip out on the drop of a hat mm. he would just freak out and become angry and being the youngest Anne marie was left alone as her siblings got older and moved out so she yeah. was left alone to deal with it now, he would scream at her and even hit her, and she had to learn to fight her own father off. God. She hid under furniture, tried beating him with a hockey stick one time, and on one occasion where Robert stole some of her money, Anne-Marie punched him. Mm, you go, girl. She tried hiding the booze after her father passed out, thinking that would help. But, you know, nothing really ever did. Yep. Amory was often sent to friends' or relatives' houses to live for periods of time as well. And eventually the house was foreclosed on by the bank, and she had to move in with her brother Brian until she graduated high school. She ended up graduating high school and attending Dover's Wesley College on a partial field hockey scholarship. She still had to work jobs in retail and restaurants to pay the rest of her tuition that the scholarship didn't pay for. While she was in school, her father had stopped drinking and was able to reconcile with Anne-Marie for a short time. Unfortunately, he would die of leukemia in 1986. She did transfer to the University of Delaware, but was struggling very much after her father's passing, so she ended up dropping out after the first semester. Anne-Marie decided to go back to Wesley, where she studied internal relations and actually went to Spain. I, I think I wrote for a year, but I think it was actually only for a semester. No. But she became obsessed with the Spanish culture. She learned Spanish. She just loved it over there. Mm -hmm. And in her last year of college, she started becoming obsessed with something else. Um, and that would be losing weight. She started taking laxatives to help lose weight, which is very, very unhealthy, as you know. And exercised for hours a day, even though she, you know, didn't really need to. Right. She was already yeah. small in them. I mean, she was a healthy size right. for how tall she was, which we'll get into at one mm. point, you know. I mean, she was 5'10". And at one point, she was 117 pounds. Yeah, that's very skinny. Yep. And to be that tall. Yeah, like it was a walking skeleton. Yep. And even though Anne-Marie was vibrant, always smiling and laughing, Brian suggested, now Brian's her brother, mm -hmm. one of her brothers, um, he suggested that her childhood led to her struggling with the depression, anxiety, the eating disorders, and the obsessive neatness that she struggled with. Her brother also said that she stayed insecure after her mother's death, even though she was gorgeous. I mean, she had brown curly hair and looked like a model. I mean, she, like I said, she was 5'10", so. Right. She could have right. definitely been a model. Now, by 1989 or 91, this differed in sources, but I, 
I think most sources kind of went with 89. Mm -hmm. um, Anne-Marie actually graduated from college, pushing through all of the struggles that she had to kind of fight through on her way to graduate. That's awesome. And, go girl. I know. Snaps. Snaps. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, after graduating college, she got her internship in D.C. where she translated documents from Spanish to English. Now, as I'm sure most of you guys know, if you're bilingual, that's really, really good for job opportunities. Yes, because sure. most people are not bilingual enough to be fluent in it to translate documents. Right. Um, but she... She wanted to be back in Wilmington, you know, that's where her family was at, her friends. And so, a family friend of hers actually helped get her a job as the scheduling secretary for Tom Carper. Now, um, this is actually a pretty funny story. So, Stephanie Harlow, which is one of my sources, I watched her four-part series on YouTube on this case. She went in, or she said on her, you know, case on this, that Henry went in to talk to Ed Frill in his office about getting a job. Um, but he happened to be out the day that she went into the office. He was on the road with Tom Carper when his staff called and let Anne-Marie holler through the phone, quote, it's me, Anne-Marie, these people want you to hire me. And then everyone started laughing. Mm -hmm. Her personality was so big and contagious that Tom Carper hired her as the appointing secretary right then. And in 1992, Carper was elected Delaware's governor. And she followed him to nice. be the governor's, um, you know, secretary or whatever. That's right. Even though she might have gotten the job as a quote-unquote favor, she worked her ass off every single day to earn where she was at. Yep. You know, she was the first one in the office every single morning. She was the most organized and on top of things as it gets. She was able to defuse tense situations easily and calm down irate people within minutes. Oh. Unfortunately, though, she was still struggling and she ended up starting to see a psychologist in 1991. Good for her. Now, she told her psychologist that she was struggling with claustrophobia, she had pain attacks often, she was having overwhelming fatigue and feelings of doom, lack of appetite, and her mood could switch from good to bad so easily. Mm. And all of the, these things were going on in the year 1993 when she met a man. Oh, God. Terrible time. They, yeah. That's the point. That's mm -hmm. the point. So we needed to paint the picture of her mental state and kind yeah. of what she went through growing mm -hmm. up and what led to her meeting Thomas Capano. Now, the first time she ever met him was, I think it was in the spring of 1993 at the Democratic fundraiser um and she was like i said working at working for the governor at the time so she would go with him or, or attend with friends at political events such as fundraisers and things like that yeah now 
She and a co-worker attended the fundraiser together, and that's when Anne-Marie spotted this, what she thought was a good-looking older gentleman making his way through the crowd, shaking hands, flashing smiles, you know, one of those hotshot people. Oh, yeah. Hotshot. Yeah. Anne-Marie made sure that she was introduced to that man who was Tom Capano. After that meeting, they started to kind of flirt back and forth a little when Tom came into the office for meetings. Mm-hmm. And they started doing business lunches with colleagues where Tom and Amory would exchange mm-hmm. looks across the table and probably play footsies if they were close enough. Mm-hmm. These business meetings turned into private lunches with Tom and Anne-Marie, and those lunches would take place in the most upscale, fancy places around Delaware. Now, this friendship continued over the next six months or so, and both Anne-Marie and Tom felt it was such a strong friendship built on mutual views and values and things. Tom loved Anne-Marie's sense of humor and how blunt and transparent she was. Right. And he liked that she was a little feisty and kept him on his toes. The relationship was strictly not physical at all because Tom Capano happened to be married Mm. with four children. Okay. Yeah. Uh Yeah. It's not good. Well, it's not good. I wouldn't say it was. Um, no. Even though he claimed and told her, you know, he was tired of the relationship and had been for a while. Yeah. Now, on Anne Marie's 28th birthday, Tom planned to take her to a very nice upscale Italian restaurant in Philly. But there was an intense ice storm that night that threw the plans off course. As they were driving, they had to stop earlier than planned because the ice was making it hard to stay on the road. And so they stopped at the chart house and shared several glasses of wine and a nice dinner together. Mm-hmm. After they ate, they went back to Anne Marie's and were intimate with each other for the very first time. Oh, he's still married. He's still married. No, nope, okay. you didn't okay. miss anything. Uh, he is still married. Probably. It would later be found that she wrote this in her diary on March 2nd, 1994. A couple months after her birthday. Mm. Quote, I have fallen in love with a very special person whose name I chose to leave anonymous. Yeah, obviously, because he's married with children. Uh, We know who each other are. It happened the night of my 28th birthday. We have built an everlasting friendship. I feel free around him. And like he says, he makes my heart smile. End quote. So who was Thomas Capano? The married man Anne Marie was in love with. Other than being a politically connected lawyer and a managing partner at one of Delaware's largest law firms, making him a very, very wealthy fella. Yeah. What and who made Tom Capano the man he was? So let's start at the beginning. Louis J. Capano. Capano. I'm gonna think. I'm thinking. I'm gonna say Capano. Yes. Capano immigrated from Italy as a child. He married a woman named Marguerite and would go on to have five children, one girl and four boys. Louis used his family skill, being a carpenter, mm-hmm. and built a very successful construction company named Louis Capano and Sons. The company started with developing and building apartment complexes and shopping centers all over Delaware. 
This started the Capano wealth that grew and grew and grew. Lewis was living the American dream from coming over as a poor immigrant who built a company from the ground up and became very successful and rich. When their children were younger, all the boys worked for the business during the summer months and would go to the school the rest of the time, just, you know, any other kid. Right. Tom, their oldest boy, focused on his schoolwork during the school year, taking his academics very, very seriously. Tom attended St. Edmund's Academy for Boys until high school, where he began Archmere Academy. Both of these schools were very expensive, prestigious private schools. Mm -hmm. Not only did Tom excel in academics, being a straight-A student and student council president, but he was also captain of the football team and ran track. Okay. He was good at everything and was literally the epitome of being born with a silver spoon up his ass or in his mouth or whatever that saying is. Uh, that's right. He was smart, funny, charismatic, and popular. His brothers said they looked up to him and his parents depended on him to bring pride to the family. Everyone in Tom's life turned to him to help solve their problems or clean up their messes. I mean, he was a natural-born leader. He was level-headed. I mean, he never lost his temper. He was said to be logical, never made decisions based on emotions. His mother, Marguerite, later said, quote, Half the time, I didn't even know he was around. All he did was want to read. He was not a problem at all. Never, 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 never. He studied all the time, end quote. His oldest and only sister, Marianne, later said, while all mothers love their children the same, there's always one child who was easier to like. And she claimed that child was Tom. Mm -hmm. So up until this point, we see no red flags. I mean, he seems to be a great kid, great son, right. great brother, great Just student, athlete. Great yeah, like, guy. Yeah. He's got, he's got it going on. Exactly. That's the whole thing. Now, once Tom graduated high school, he went to Boston College and met a young lady named Kay Ryan. She was studying to become a nurse. They actually ended up getting married in 1972 and stayed in Boston for two years while Tom finished law school. Luckily for him, his entire education was being paid for by his parents and always had been, so he would never have any student loans he never had to work a job to pay through school what like Emory did you know just two had it made in the shade period yeah. always mm -hmm. had so mm -hmm. in 1974 Tom and Kay moved back to Wilmington where Tom began working as a public defender but two years later he decided he would go on the offense side of things and become a prosecutor uh -huh. so he flipped the script which Flip he does he yes. does it yeah he does it again um a little later down the line and i'll i'll, I'll let you i'll tie the i'll tie the ties together so hold on to that um by 1977 tom capano 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 was i saying capano or capano i think capano is what you were saying capano. i'll confuse myself i'll just i like capano i think capano. It perfect thank you by 1977, Tom was working at one of Wilmington's largest homegrown legal firms. 
Morris, James, Hitchens, and Williams. Before Tom was 30 years old, he was making six figures. Like, he was wow. balling. Before he was, what, 30? 30. Dang. All right, Tom. I'm saying. Tom and Kay bought an 8,000 square foot home. Beautiful home. Mm-hmm. Um, they had their first daughter, Christy, in the year 1980. Then the year after that came Katie. Two years later, Jenny was born. And their fourth and final daughter, Alexandra, was born in 1985. So within- That's the same year I was born. Sorry, I always have to say it. I think when people familiar, will know, yeah. <laughs> familiar year comes up. The 1985 year. Mm-hmm. Um, but within those five years, Tom had four children. But unfortunately, there were other things going on that were not as happy for him, if you want to say. Um, in 1980, Louis Capano, Tom's father, unexpectedly died from a heart attack. Now, that caused one of Tom's younger brothers, Jerry, to go on his own downward spiral. Jerry was in high school at Archmere when he started using drugs heavily. And I'm not talking about, like, just staying high from weed all the time. Jerry was... talking about, like, heroin. Oh, yeah, probably, but specifically that I found LSD, speed, cocaine, and yeah, probably just about anything else that you can think of. Yeah, that was hardcore. Yeah, you're talking about hardcore for real. Now, even though it took a while for Archmere to actually go ahead and kick Jerry out of school... I mean, they did eventually ask him not to return after his sophomore year because of the drugs and his behavior was just such a distraction. And I mean, yeah, like you're paying a lot of money, but you can't be shooting up in the bathroom at school. Right. And just being high. Yeah, man. Not weed high. Being like, yeah, geeked up. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Jerry attempted Brandywine High School, the large local public school, but that only landed him in handcuffs and arrested on drug charges not too soon after. Mm. The judge that had the case was planning on sending him to a treatment treatment facility for boys, but Tom, big brother hero, was able to swoop in and get Jerry to avoid any treatment facility or jail time at all. But you know he needed that treatment facility. Oh, yeah, because you just wait. Mm. Jerry ended up doing night school. He did get his GED, though. Um, And he graduated. So then they sent him to the family condo in Boca Raton. Uh Is that how I say it? That was beautiful. Beautiful. Out of sight, out of mind for the Capanos. Okay, yeah. And Florida was better than Joe. So, right. Jerry went to a community college down there, ended up getting arrested for drunk driving. Tom fixed that issue really quick and brought Jerry back to Delaware, Mm. where Jerry started working at the family business so somebody could keep an eye on him at all times. Um, But that didn't technically work out either. Because Jerry was miserable to be around and was a horrible employee. 
So he was soon fired and told that he would be on his own. Jerry was like, hallelujah. I've Cut been... off from the family, though, right? Well, okay. he was fired from the family business. Uh-huh. Now, Jerry was like, I've been trying to tell y'all folks I'm not trying to work because I have this huge trust fund. When Pop died, uh-huh. I don't need to work. Why, why, would I, why would I do that? Right. Now, the only thing that I found out about this whole situation was when Lewis Sr. died, he left everything to his wife and children. Now, the three eldest brothers, Tom, Lewis Jr., and Joseph, were the trustees and were instructed to pay their mom, Mary and their sister, and the youngest brother, Jerry, an allowance basically, so that they could continue living the way they had been before Lewis Sr. died. Mm -hmm. So, the three eldest were in charge of distributing their father's assets accordingly, and Jerry knew he would continue making bank from doing absolutely nothing. Nothing. Except for getting getting high. And getting arrested for doing doing all kinds of things. And I mean, he's drinking too on top of that. He got arrested in Florida for drunk driving, and it's just a Peach. So, yeah. unfortunately, Jerry was not the only uh, Capano brother that was in some trouble. In fact, the Capanos sound like the lesser-known Kennedys. Mm-hmm. Like someone's always in trouble. Yep. Um, in 1982, his brother Louis Jr. pled no contest to second-degree reckless endangerment. Mm-hmm. Allegedly, Louis was arrested, or uh, this isn't allegedly, Louis was arrested after he allegedly Mm -hmm. threw a chair through a sliding glass door at his brother-in-law's house and then proceeded to beat up his brother-in-law. Now, I couldn't ever find any additional information about this, um, so I'm wondering if the charges got dropped or swept under the rug or something. Um, But don't worry, old Louie will come back up in just a few Mm -hmm. seconds. Now, in the year 1984, while Tom was working on the camp pain on of Don Frawley, who was running for mayor, he made a really good donation to the campaign, and it was helpful in getting Frawley elected mayor. So, to show his thanks, Frawley offered Tom the job of city solicitor, and of course, Tom accepted, even though this was a pay cut. Right. Now, if you don't know, a city solicitor, because I didn't know. I was, well, I was just about I was to ask. say, I didn't know, I so... This is basically the city's legal advice and represents them in cases if they were ever to get sued or needed to sue somebody, I suppose. They're their legal advice. They're the city's lawyers from what I'm... Yeah. Uh Now, this was more of a business move than anyone knew. So, Tom wasn't taking the job to do good or because he could. You know, he did it to make connections in the political world yeah he was doing this so he would be able to be tied to you know i mean he's you know working for the mayor right now but he was using this to get connections in higher places yep and his goal was to make these friends and connections connections in case he needed a favor in the future Mm mm-hmm so, when those connections were... That old were, chestnut. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And when those connections were established, he would go back to making six figures as a prosecutor. That was what his plan was. Mm-hmm. In 1988, when Frawley was re-elected, Tom did not continue working for him because he was needed elsewhere at the time. 
Now, this is when old Louie comes back up. Mm. He had actually gotten himself into some trouble. By 1989, he was right in the middle of a political corruption scandal, and the FBI was onto him. He ended up admitting that he had given money to a county councilman, Ronald Allo, for his campaign in 87 and 88, in an understanding that Allo would give a favorable rezoning vote. Once they had Lewis's confession, they used him to get an aloe on record saying he accepted a $25,000 bribe. Mm. Sketchy folks, but... It's a tale as old as time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But this is a good case as to why most people in politics are bad. Like, it doesn't matter what side they're on. They're all doing stuff that they benefit from specifically. They don't care about us. They don't care about you. They don't care about me. Period. Period. But here comes Lewis's nine shining armor on a white horse coming to the rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom got all the charges dropped against Lewis. And after all this chaos in the family, Marguerite asked Tom to come back and work to get the family business back on track. Yeah. He agreed to work for them for one year, and that's exactly what he did. After 365 days, he quit and started as the chief legal assistant to the governor of Delaware, Republican Michael Castle. Mm. Now, this is another time where he kind of like flips the switch real fast. So, this caused some talk behind the scenes because the last politician he worked for, Don Frawley, was a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And now he's working for a Republican. Mm-hmm. So it it got him looks quite often because allegedly in Delaware they're pretty strict on not crossing political sides. I'm not really sure about that, but right. Tom didn't, you know, I mean, it, maybe it made him look a little indecisive or, or whatever, but he could care less because he was working where the money was at and he was doing a smart business move in his opinion. Now, while Tom is working on his career, here comes another Capano brother with legal trouble. Like I said, <laughs> just they just keep going. The lesser known Kennedys. Mm-hmm. No offense, don't sue me. In 1991, Joseph Capano charged with kidnapping and repeated rape of a 27-year-old woman on Halloween night that he might have previously dated in the past. Wow. Yeah. That's escalated quite, quite quickly. Quite quickly. That is a lot. He denied this accusation, of course, saying she had given his, given him consent. Tom came in, got the attorney general to agree to let Joseph plead guilty to lesser charges of assault, unlawful sexual contact, and criminal mischief, which he served no jail time for. Of course he served no jail time. Yeah, that's not surprising. In the slightest. Uh-uh. So, as you can see, Tom Capano was a very, very busy man. I mean, he was married with four children, working for the governor, and he continuously had to bail his brothers out of serious crimes, right. like, every single Constantly. year. Well, I'm about to add another little dash of fun onto that caseload, shall I say. Sprinkle it in. In 1977, only Five years after Tom had married Kay, he became obsessed with a 27-year-old legal secretary named Linda Marandola. She was Tom's friend's secretary at the firm. 
Uh, Tom uh. wooed Linda in no time with his charm and would convince Linda to go out to business lunches to get to know each other. One evening, Tom ran into Linda at a bar in Wilmington. They ended up talking and drinking together, and I'm sure after probably one too many drinks, they went and slept together for the first time. The morning after usually hits hard, and it was no different for Linda. She was feeling super guilty because not only did she know that Tom was married, but she was also engaged herself. Linda! Sis, what you doing out there at the bar? Out there at the bar? <laughs> Creeping. Well, Linda told Tom that this was the first and last time this ever happened, but later at her bachelorette party, she got a little too drunk and ended up back at Tom's house mm -hmm. while Kay was out of town. Now, apparently Tom was at her bachelorette party for some reason. It's a little strange. But, whatever. Normally, bachelorette parties are ladies only. Uh, well, now, I'm wondering if he wasn't necessarily invited or if he kind of stalked her there. Okay. Because we'll kind of find out a little bit later on in our case that that's just kind of his little as his, his little game. This time was the last time for real because after this, Linda ignored and denied Tom's advances. Mm -hmm. But Tom was very, very persistent and called her frequently, and he started just popping by trying to get her to go out again, um, like very stalker esque, if you ask me. Um, Linda made it to her wedding day without sleeping with the enemy again, but she would see him because he was invited to the wedding. Oh, goodness. Now, on the wedding day, Tom hunted her down, pulled her aside, and started kissing her, begging Linda to not get married because he was in love with her. Even with this last-minute confession, Linda got married anyways, and Tom did not stop. Like, he kept on. He continued blowing her phone up, wrote love letters telling her how upset and heartbroken he was. Just one of those people. He's going to get what he wants at no cost, just what it he sounds like to thinks. me. thinks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he would tell her that there was a fire in between them and she should not ignore it. But, Tom and, would, but, but he, what, Tom is still married. Yes. Okay. And at this time, I don't right. think he's got any children yet. But yes, he's been married for approximately five years now. So the entire five, time, years. he's trying to get this lady not to marry her fiancé. And he's, he's married himself. Yeah. yeah. And he's in love with her. She shouldn't do it. But, excuse me, sir. You think married. this is hypocritical? Just wait. Hold on to what you got. Because... Doesn't seem like a good dude. Uh, I've seen quite a few red flags here. <laughs> and we're not even to the half of it mm. so you know Tom would say he would leave his wife and Linda could leave her husband so Linda could be his secretary you know the typical fantasy yeah whatever Tom. Michelle please leave Will I'll leave McKay okay. and I'll make you my secretary okay yep wink Get wink it, baby. wink wink doesn't that sound like a good deal? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Take it while the offer lasts. <laughs> okay. In 1980, when his first child was born, Tom wrote a letter to Linda to tell her that he wished that she 
was the one who birthed his first child. Wow. Okay. What you talking about? Some wow. Let me let me find out that McKay's done wrote some secret love letter to some lady saying, saying that he wished that she birthed my baby. Uh-uh. You're getting uh-huh. chopped at the base? Yes. <laughs> and it's a whiff. Okay? I would not... I would be so mad. Oh, my land, I would be pissed. Yeah. My brain won't even fully process that. Like, what... What would you do in that situation? That's, once your girl has a baby, like, your relationship's on a different level. You created another human. Yeah, with somebody. And and Show that bad, respect. And that bad bitch grew the baby, sustains its life in her own body for nine went months. through hellacious labor. Maybe not hellacious but for everybody, but whatever. She birthed the child. Then she kept it alive. While it was a baby. Ooh wee. That's pretty strong. He sucks. Pretty yeah. strong. Now Linda started to become more assertive and firm in avoiding and pushing away Tom's passes. Mm-hmm. She would tell him straight out that she did not want a relationship with him. You know, they were more than welcome to be friends, but both of them were married. I mean, like, he just had his first child. She was very adamant that he needed to stop. Focus on your family, yeah, sir. You have a newborn at home. Go help Ugh. your wife, please. Yeah. She's probably tired. Now, this is when the sweet, loving, gentle Tom went away and the first signs of an angry, possessive Tom came out. He warned her that this was his town and she needed to leave or she would be sorry if she didn't. He said he would do... Oh, yeah. He said he would do everything in his power to make her go. And instead of being a cute, secret admirer of sorts, he really did turn into that creepy, obsessive stalker you become scared of. Linda started receiving calls where no one was on the other end, and after several days, possibly longer of these calls, Linda received an eviction notice from her apartment, which just so happened to be owned by the Capone family. Yeah. Now, this was the last straw for Linda. She was the perfect tenant, no complaints, always paid rent on time, no damage, so she went to her boss and told him that Tom Capano had been harassing her. Mm. Her boss said that Tom probably had just gotten a little carried away. I mean, he's a little intense. He doesn't take no for an answer really well. But he'll, you know, he'll get he's over fine. it. fine. Still a great guy. Yeah. Don't worry. You know, just give it a few days. He'll calm down. Whatever. Because remember, her boss was Tom's buddy. Oh, yeah. But Tom did not get over it. Tom got in touch with a dude named Joseph Riley, who was some sort of mobster, or some... He might have thought he was a mobster. I'm not sure if he was an official mobster. He was a nefarious character. Yes, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And Tom told him that he was pissed Linda wanted nothing to do with her, with him, and said, quote, I want to hurt this bitch. I want her hurt very bad. Did you get someone to knock her over the head or have her run over by a car, end quote? Yeah. Riley was thinking, like, uh, man, that wasn't the favor I necessarily was offering to you, but, um, you know, he sat on that information for a little while, you know, hoping Tom would calm down. 
I mean, where was this guy who never made decisions based on his emotions? Yeah. Mm. Well, Tom called Riley a few weeks after that and said that he still wanted to get even with that woman. Riley realized Tom was not going to stop, so he decided to reach out to someone else. He called Dean Wedge, a retired FBI agent working as a PI. And Wedge told Riley to start recording the calls. The first thing he would need was proof of what Tom was saying. Right. The next call Riley received from Tom, he recorded. And Tom basically walked right into telling him exactly what he wanted done to Linda. And this tape was played for Wedge and Tom's boss but was basically locked away, and Tom got off with just a serious talking to. Of course. Under the impression Linda was telling on him more, he wanted to retaliate, so he told Riley he wanted him to harass Linda and her family. Then told Riley he wanted him to record the harassment so he could make sure that Riley was doing as he was asked. I personally think he was just being sadistic and liked her hearing her scared and stressed out. Yep. But Linda was not letting this get to her, and she would immediately hang up when she realized it was the harassment calls. Tom, being bothered that he couldn't get to her, ordered Riley to start after her husband next. Linda ended up leaving Wilmington, and they ended up later getting divorced. That's so sad. Well, let's let's go on to this. So, in 1987, Tom picked the phone up and decided to give Linda a call for the first time in a few years. He said he wanted to take her to Atlantis, Atlantic City for her 33rd birthday. Considering that she was now single and Tom seemed like the sweet man he was when they first met, she agreed and they ended up in a seaside condo. So, after all that, girlfriend went on vacay with him. Sis. Yeah. I, okay. All right. Well. Mm-hmm. Now, during that trip, he presented her with a gold watch with his and her initials engraved on the back. She was having a good time, but when Tom asked if she had been seeing other men, she answered yes. He flipped the switch. He was calling her all kind of names and stormed out of the hotel. Mm-hmm. But remember, he's still married. Now, not only was he married, but he was also secretly seeing the wife of one of his fellow lawyers, who was also his co-worker in the same firm. Christ. So, he had a wife, he was seeing Linda, and now he's seeing another lady. Now, this man and his family were actually close with Tom and his family. The men worked together, and they lived close by each other, so they spent a lot of time together. I think they went on vacations often, too. Mm -hmm. Now, Tom had been eyeing his uh, co-worker's wife, Deborah McIntyre, ever since he first laid eyes on her. And he knew that he had to have her. So, on a New Year's Eve party in 1981, Tom took Debbie by the hand, led her to the bathroom, and confessed that he was in love with her. He started kissing her, and apparently Debbie felt the same way. Because after that, Tom and Debbie were together all the time. They were So Debbie was into it. Yeah. Somebody tried to grab my hand and lead me into a bathroom and see what you get. And knee to the crotch. (laughs) Okay, I don't know. 
They continued this affair for 13 years. That's always so crazy to me. 13 years they were creeping around, still married to their other significant well, others. I was going to say, Debbie was like Spouses. a sneaky little hoe. Okay. She was really, really good friends with Kay and even helped Tom plan Kay's 31st birthday party. Okay, I had a situation like that growing up with the same, like, best. they were best friends. How you steal your best friend's man? How could you do that? Yikes, man. I don't know what to say about you, little... Yikes. Thirsty yeah. O's. Thirsty. Wait. Mm. Don't come from mine. Get a single man. Because I'll beat the hell out of you. Period. Kay never suspected a thing between those two. Ever. How? I don't know. Kay was in La La Land. La 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 La! <laughs> she was medicated, I bet. I'd be willing to bet. For real. Well, Debbie was so brazen that she would walk into Tom's place of work, the same place where her husband worked at, and would go into Tom's office and make out with him. Thirsty as hell. They would meet up at sketchy <coughs> hotels and talk on the phone like every single day. The sketchy hotel thing? Mm-mm. You ain't fixing to catch me getting sleazy in a cockroach-infested hotel room now. Quit playing, okay? No. If you want to creep, you want to roast leave butthole. If you want to creep, do you want a roach to crawl in your area, your derriere? I would have to say no. <laughs> okay. But Don't be cheating on your husband and, and your you wives. Thank you. Divorce them. Let be like, look. We're about to separate, and we're going to start divorcing, and I'm going to go get me an apartment, and or, then I'm bang this lady that I love. Or, <laughs> this lady that I love. I mean. Or you become a swingers if you're both into that. Right. Yeah. Just need to have that open conversation. Have an upside down pineapple outside your door, perhaps. What you what you involved in, sis? <laughs> All right, no. Telling secrets on the pod. No, I'm not. I wish Whoa! I could my face. This really took a left turn. It really did. Talking about these people, I could never live like Tom. Oh, <laughs> it's like where are we going with this? Do I we, could. Do never I need to turn the podcast off? Wait. I could never live like that. I could not oh, live with the, the cheating. He's a very busy man. The How sneaking. do you have time? Yeah. How do you keep them all separate? Uh-uh. That's too much. I can't deal with a woman. Me neither, man. <laughs> it's exhausting. I just spit. Exhausting. <laughs> I haven't been out in public in quite some time away from my family. Yeah. If you can't tell. Neither have I. By 1983, she was so convinced that Tom was who she was supposed to be with, she didn't even fight when her husband filed for divorce that year. So he finally found out, like... I suppose. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of details on this, but yes, I'm assuming that he find out. He find out? He find out. And he filed for divorce. 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 Yeah. She ended up moving into a house close to Tom and his family so they could sneak around anytime they wanted. 
Now, we're going to get into a little bit um, kinky stuff, if you shall, but we'll just hold, hold on to your horses. Well, I'll hold on to you. But yes, we are. Hopefully, we are. Um, I mean, me and you are. I don't know about all the right. listeners. But anyways, Debbie ended up asking Tom to leave Kay so that they could be together, but he told her that he could not do that to his family. But he still wanted to have Debbie on the side, and he enjoyed how kinky they could get. Uh, so, if sexual stuff gives you some uncomfy talkies, but we just kind of already jumped into the whole swinger thing, so. That's right. I mean, we're just going to bust you out. I mean, um, they started watching porn together and mm-hmm. weren't afraid of a group activities, if you know what I mean. Um, Tom told Debbie that if she ever had any males over to give him a call, he would come over, hide in the bushes outside, and watch them have sex. That's so weird. They engaged in a threesome once with one of Tom's friends. Oh. Um. So, I feel like all of this is very important to build the character of Tom Capano before his relationship with Anne-Marie Fahey. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tom Capano had so many red flags that, like, in his behavior that this man was, like, a red flag himself. A walking red walking flag, if you will. Red flag. And he isn't even that good looking. He, I mean, he clearly has a history of cheating. He keeps becoming obsessed with his mistresses. Obsessed in the sense that he wants a physical connection with these women. You know, he likes the secret rendezvous. um, And he likes to spoil them, but he does not ever plan on leaving his wife. Yep. Now, this is the man we're dealing with. You think she was a good cook or something? Who? Like, his wife. His real wife. The one he wouldn't leave. No, maybe it was... I don't know. Children. I don't know. Why do people do this? People do this all the time. Yeah. He's not good looking. No, he's not grody. Gross. Now, um, you know, this is who we're dealing with. Who the ma- the man who Anne thought she was in love with. Like I said, Tom and Anne Marie talked on the phone all the time. He would take her out to nice restaurants that she would never have gone to on her own because she wouldn't have really been able to afford them. Yep. And Tom liked being the one who could open these doors for her and made it seem like he was the only one who could. Yep. You know, shower with these gifts and these nice things, take her to these expensive places she would never be able to be able to go on. Made her feel special. Exactly. Yep. Few, and like a, made, made <sighs> her feel special and made him feel like a big shot. Oh, exactly. And a few weeks after his first entry about, or a few weeks after her first entry about the mystery man, she made an entry on March 24th that read, quote, My boyfriend, Tomas, asked me today if I wanted to be his girlfriend and live... Yes, I'll tell you about that in just a moment. And live alone, and he would pay rent for my room. I need to think. I love him, but he has four children and a wife. I will be a silent girlfriend, end quote. Now, like you said, super side, super quick side note, since Anne-Marie loved the culture of Spain and, you know, studied in Spain for a semester... She had a nickname for him, and it was what his Spanish name would be. So, in her diary, she would refer to Tom as Tomas. 
Now, Tom wanted to place her in an apartment or house by herself so he could come spend time with her whenever he wanted. Because up until this point, she was living with roommates. And Anne-Marie ended up actually declining the offer. And you're thinking, oh, so he probably flipped out, right? Because he's this controlling crazy person we talked about earlier. Right. But he said he understood and he just wanted her to be happy. Okay. Um, so it's pretty early on in the relationship though. Uh, he hadn't hooked her quite yet. Yep, yep. One month later on April 24th, she wrote, I quote, I had a great day on Friday. My friend and I went to his house to eat. What a house. He enchants me. During the weekend, my thoughts are devoted to Tomas. I'm afraid because I'm in love with a man who has a family. I need to realize that our relationship will never be anything other than a secret. I fantasize about my life with him all the time. He's very gentle, intelligent, handsome, and very interesting. Why does he have to be married? End quote. And then two days later, she said, quote, Wow, what a day. I talked to Tomas last night. Our relationship is finished. He told me I need to find a man without children who has a lot of time for me because I am very special and I deserve much more. After what he said, I was very sad and cried all night. I know it is my problem and my fault because from the very beginning, I knew what I was getting myself into. Sometimes it's very easy to write, but very difficult to cope. I have dreams about him and me making love and living together, but it will never happen. After he left, I was so empty, sad, lonely. I told him things that were hidden inside of me. I feel so comfortable with him. I can say anything. I watched him get in his car and drive away. I went to bed and cried myself to sleep. Ciao, T. I love you. End quote. Hmm. Anne-Marie was upset, heartbroken, and all of her fears of abandonment had come true. She didn't understand, after all, only a day or two ago, that Thomas had bought her this very, very expensive, beautiful dress that Anne-Marie had found in Talbots that she wanted to wear to a wedding, but she couldn't afford. So, Tomas, Tomas, (laughs) so Thomas, Tom, was using his power and his money, you know, again. Right. So, after telling her, you know, one day we can't be together, the next, or, let me back up, so... A few days ago, he buys this beautiful dress to wear to this wedding. The next day, he calls her, tells her they can't be together. A day or two after that, he calls her again and, you know, said that they could be together after all. That he just couldn't live without her and he was in love with her. Um, you know, he'd be going out of town for a few days for a law conference and wouldn't be able to see her until he came back. You know, <clears throat> but they, he wanted to see her when he did come back. So. Right. He gets back together with her, and, you know, all this was true. He was going to a law conference in Montreal, but the only detail he left out was that he wouldn't be going alone. Instead of Anne-Marie accompanying him or, you know, his wife or even going alone, he decided to take Debbie McIntyre, you know, his 13-long-year affair. Wait, how many? This guy. Wow. Play it to the max. Yeah, and very organized and, like, keeps up with his, his business if he can keep all these different ones going. Yeah. Now, but a boob also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Debbie later recalled of her time in Montreal with Tom that she barely had him to herself. They were alone maybe a few hours out of the day, but she did describe it as bliss, even though 
they had been seeing each other for over a decade. They had never been on a trip together. But on the flight home, Tom made her sit far away from him, telling her that he did not want anyone they knew to see them together. And when they landed in Philly, Tom took Debbie to a restaurant named Panorama. And on the way back to Wilmington, Debbie realized she'd forgotten her purse at the restaurant, so they had to turn back around. Tom was pissed. Mm. He called her stupid and an idiot. He complained the entire time that they were wasting because of her mistake. And Debbie apologized and apologized and later recalled that at one that at this point in their relationship, that's all she felt like she was doing was apologizing to him. Mm. She said, quote, I was sorry for things I didn't even need to be sorry for. And I was probably getting never a good thing. Oh no. Very toxic. Yeah. Um, and that was probably getting on his nerves. He made me feel like such an idiot. He was so verbally abusive that night, end quote. Mm. This ugly man talking to her like that. Right. After he was just so, like, hot and cold with Anne-Marie yeah. two days earlier. Boob. Now, Anne-Marie was about to be on her own. Her two roommates were actually um, moving. Mm -hmm. One of them was going back to New Zealand, and the other was about to be getting married. So, Amory was about to need to find somewhere to, new to live, and that meant she was going to have to dip into her savings. So, no trip to Ireland that she had been planning with her little brother, and no detour to Spain that she had been dreaming of. As she did with everything else, she talked with Tom about this. You know, how she was upset that she wouldn't be able to go to Ireland with her little brother. She wouldn't be able to go to Spain like she was planning. And not long after this talk, Anne-Marie was given an envelope at her desk at work that had $500 in it. And a note that said, use this to go to Spain. She ended up not going to Spain. To going to Spain, but she did go to Ireland with her brother. She seemed to be in a very good, you know, space mentally, but her friends did notice she was starting to look thin again. For lunch dates with her girlfriend, she would only order ice water, and her grocery shopping really only consisted of fruit. Her friend Jill ended up confronting her and telling her she was basically going to kill herself, but Amory responded nice. saying not to worry that she would be around for a long time. Now, during this time, she was dependent on Bob Connors, her therapist that she had been seeing for a few years, and the man she'd been secretly dating, Tom Capano. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. January 25th, 1995, Anne-Marie got a call from Bob asking to reschedule their appointment for that day because he had gotten an emergency call from another patient. In a very, very unfortunate and unseen turn of events, Bob got into an accident with a drunk driver that night mm. and he was killed. A drunk driver actually crossed over into his lane on the highway and hit him. Anne-Marie felt as if this was her fault. Or she should have insisted on keeping their scheduled appointment time. And she ended up writing in her diary later that she loved Bob and he had helped her so much. But there was so much more that they had to work on. 
you know, she wrote that Bob really understood her and liked her for who she truly was. That could have been her future, you know? She could have married Bob. Well, I don't know about all that nonsense, but mm-hmm. it also wasn't her fault. You know, how in the heck would she have known he would have gotten into an accident with a drunk driver? But that's besides the point. That month was Anne-Marie's 30th birthday, though, and her friends wanted to take her out to eat, but Anne-Marie was 30 minutes late showing up to dinner. She was late because Tom dropped by her apartment to give her a gift for her birthday. The gift was a 27-inch colored TV, which was a very, very extravagant and expensive gift at the time. When was this? 1995. Okay. When she got to dinner, she told the girls why she was late, and they were all a little confused or taken aback that she received such a nice gift from a married man that was supposedly only a friend. Uh, Most of her friends had no idea what was going on between her and Tom, so most of them made comments like, he likes you, or that he wanted something more than a friendship. And she always told them no, he was just a good friend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you say so, I don't have random friends gifting me nice TVs, but that's besides the point. Especially if it were innocent. Exactly. (laughs) Um, After Bob's death, she started seeing another therapist named Gary Johnson, but she wasn't really quite quite ready to move on Mm -hmm. to someone else yet. So, she mainly confided in Tom. And during one of these conversations in February, Tom was telling her about a party or a get-together they were having for a mutual friend of theirs at, like, a bar or something. So, when Anne-Marie was, you know, she, I mean, as I would take that as an invitation of, hey, we're going to be here. Right. Wouldn't you go? Maybe. I mean, wouldn't you take that as an invitation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't have to necessarily go, but I would take it as an invitation. Right. That's an invitation. For sure. So, Anne-Marie showed up at the bar with two of her friends, and she was met with a completely different scene than she was expecting. Tom was at the bar, smiling and having a good time, with his arm wrapped around none other than his wife, Kay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when Tom happened to see Anne-Marie, his face instantly turned into a face full of rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Anne-Marie was a little upset about this and left as soon as she could turn around. She did not want to be in the same facility as Tom Capano if she could not talk to him That's... or be around him. Right. Not only that, but seeing him with his wife acting like a normal couple was kind of sickening to her. You know, she was under the impression that he was done with that relationship. You know, that she thought he hated his wife, or that's how he made it seem. Of course. So, she ended up writing in her diary later that it wasn't until that moment she realized how much she truly loved and cared for Tom Capano but how he would never be hers. It wasn't until several days later when Anne-Marie had contact with Tom for the first time since that bar accident or incident or whatever, you know? And I actually think she was the one that called him. He was extremely short with her and rushed her off the phone. Mm. Not the loving, doting man that she thought she was with. Right. 
He abruptly hung up the phone and had several days passed again with no word from Tom. She was afraid that they were just not okay and that caused her much anxiety and depression about this situation, you know. Absolutely. She wrote in her diary again, quote, What the F? Why won't he talk to me? What did I do? God, please tell me what the F is going on. Tomas, please talk to me. I love you. End quote. A week with no contact, and Tom finally called her to set up a meeting or a, a you know, an appointment. Right. Like it was some business relationship. Mm-hmm. He acted like he had been torn. He wasn't ignoring her because of anything she had done to upset him. He was just completely in love with her and thinking about her with anybody else angered him. Anne-Marie had been emotionally brainwashed from what I think. And, you know, hearing I love you and everything was okay made her yeah. made her feel okay. Yep. She was a victim in the situation and Tom took it to his advantage to the fullest extent he was being like soap opera dramatic like he was so dramatic okay one minute they're holding each other tearing up the next minute he's throwing his hands up saying he needs to let her go for her sake like it's all for your sake you're better off without me i'm just such a great guy yeah you're gonna i'm just gonna have to let you go yeah and be with my wife and be an upstanding human yeah you know that night she wrote in her diary that she was empty without tom saying he deserved to be happy and that she would wait for him forever now, Anne-Marie was going through something people in psychology like to call intermittent reinforcement, which is basically when you do something and get a good reaction out of it sometimes. Right. Now, I want to shout out one of a TikToker on here because she is the first one that brought up my, um, my knowledge of intermittent reinforcement. I think she was doing it as like a little funny TikTok video. But right. you helped me out in my true crime podcast. Sis, nice. So uh, I'm probably going to screw up your tag. But I'll tag you in the comments. Um, but it's Mads. M-C-E-L Henny. Or yeah. whatever. But I'll tag you. Yeah. So yeah. thanks sister. But yeah. So I fully believe that she was kind of. In this little. You know. Dealing with intermittent um, reinforcement. You know, in these relationships, the receiver or the victim receives regular, cruel, callous, and abusive treatment with a few occasional and sudden displays of extreme affection and reward giving. So, you know, this is a most definitely a form of psychological abuse. Absolutely. The anxiety and sadness that comes from the isolation or abuse causes the victim, in this case, Anne-Marie, you know, desperate for any sign of affection. And this this continuous hot and cold caused Anne-Marie to grow dependent on Tom for that high of the feeling yep. of love and affection Absolutely. that he could give her. Yep. You know, she made the statement that he made her feel like the only girl in the world when they were together and she was addicted to that. And yep. he was the only one that could give it to her or so she thought. Yep. Another big sign of abuse that Tom Capano showed was isolating Anne-Marie from her friends and family to make her feel as mm, if he we was... We know that's a red flag. We all know that. Oh, yeah. Like, 
he wanted to be the only one that she could turn to in in mm-hmm. cases of you know problems. Right. If there was ever any other man interested in Anne Marie, Tom acted like it made him sad and as if someone was stealing something from him. Mm. All the time she spent with other people was time that they could be together, even though he was never available for her. Like Tommy, when do you sleep, man? You had a wife, four children, a full-time job, and at this time, maybe two or or three side chicks. So, you need to tell me, like, when you have the time for this. (laughs) Um, Psychologically abusing, probably not just her, all of them. Exactly. By the spring of 1995, Anne-Marie never went out with friends anymore. And if she did have plans, she would cancel at the last minute saying she couldn't go. Or that Tom was having a hard time and needed someone to talk to. She felt obligated to him. And she made the statement to a friend once that Tom had helped her so many times. How could she ever tell him that she didn't have time for him when he needed it? And that's how he wanted her to feel. Right. Not long after this, though, Tom had an interview set up for a new job for Amory. She could be his brother's secretary, Lewis. Uh Now, this job came with an apartment and everything. After the interview, she ended up meeting with a friend, Jill, for drinks. And she told Jill it felt like Tom was trying to control her and keep tabs on her. I she, would agree. Uh, yeah, me too. Like, very much agree. Yes. Um, she realized that Tom would be reasonable, would be the reason for getting her that job and new apartment. And let's say anything bad were to happen between them or she wanted to leave him. Tom could get that taken away from her so she would be homeless and she would be without a job. Yeah. Not a good situation. No, never. She would be indebted to him or it would seem like she would be. That was only the beginning of the possessiveness that Tom would display. He started telling her how to de- how to dress. And oh, like, I hate that. Me but too. It's like, oh, it pisses me off so bad. Me too. Oh my gosh, it drives me insane. I don't care what you tell me. I'm going to do me and wear what I want to wear. Well, listen to this. When he saw her wearing a tight skirt to work once, he made the comment that she looked like a whore and that she kept saying she wanted to get somewhere in her career, but dressing like that was the exact opposite of doing that. And he said it was embarrassing. After another one-week silent treatment, Tom called Anne-Marie and asked her what she would do if it was her last day on Earth. And she responded by saying she would want to play hooky and stay home with him all day long. And he screamed back at her, saying that it was all a lie and he didn't believe any of it before slamming the phone down in her ear. Oh, boo. He is, like, so crazy and so dramatic, psychotic, like, bananas. Yeah. As the summer approached, Anne-Marie was planning weekend trips with her friends to the shore, as she did every summer until her friend Kim informed her that there were men invited this year. She told Kim that she thought that Tom would be upset about her sleeping under the same roof as other men, but she continued on with the plans anyways because she did already pay the deposit. Kim later said of that summer was, you know, she said the summer of 95 was miserable. 
Uh, Anne-Marie made excuses as to why she couldn't make it most weekends. And on the off chance Anne-Marie did go, she was upset because her and Tom were fighting about it before she got there. You know, he would literally show up to her apartment as she was packing her bags to leave for the weekend and scream at her for hours before, you know, eight out of ten times she decided she just wouldn't go. And, you know, you know, the 2% chance that she did go, he would tell her that she would, you know, you won't be hearing from me again. And the cycle Holler, continued bitch. over and over. <laughs> for real, I wish right? she would have said that to oh, him. Wait. Now, after all of this, Anne-Marie did start second-guessing her feelings for Tom Capano, without his knowledge, of course. Were they meant to be together? Should she continue this relationship? I mean, while she was weighing the pros and cons, basically, Tom invited her to stay four days with him at a luxurious resort. Tom thought they had a great time those four days, you know, relaxing, horseback riding, partying, making love, as he put it. But Anne-Marie described it completely different, saying they argued a lot of the trip. And on the way back to Wilmington, Anne-Marie really did decide to make a list of things her and Tom had in common. And to say the list was short is an understatement. Mm. You know, their commonalities included bread, pasta, Italian food, Frank Sinatra, politics, wine, and children. Yeah, Not a really not a good lot. list, mm -hmm. you know, to get married on. And it, not that he's offering. It, well, that's exactly mm -hmm. right. Um, not too long after this trip, though, Tom Capano would drop a bomb, diggity bomb, on Anne Marie, and probably every single person that I'm about to drop in your ears right now. Uh. He said it was finally time that he was going to divorce Kay. Oh. Mm -hmm. Anne Marie warned him not to be divorcing her because of their relationship, but because it was something that he really, really wanted to do. And by the end of August of 95, he sat his wife in Fort Dow four daughters down to tell them that he had been unhappy for a long time. He informed them that he would be moving out for a while and assured them it was nothing that any of them had done personally or at all. Kay asked if there was another woman involved and he said, absolutely not. And after this, he told Debbie that this meant that they could finally be together and get married. But she just needed to be patient and wait a little so longer. So he told Debbie, not Marie. Right. Okay. But, um, here comes side chick number three, Susan. We don't know about Susan yet, do we? No, but she's mm -hmm. about to get thrown in the mix. So, while all this was getting, you know, thrown at you, um, Anne-Marie was secretly being set up with a banker from Rhode Island. Okay. Yeah. So, her boss, Tom Carper, was actually the one that was setting her up with this fella. Mm -hmm. um, but he was a 32-year-old, you know, single guy, um, and his name was Michael Scanlon. He was the complete opposite of Tom. He wasn't abusive to anyone's knowledge, and by October of 95, she was feeling so good about her relationship with Mike. I mean, you know, she started pulling away from Tom more and more, which is good. Yes, She was good. finally separating herself from her abuser. Right. Um, Tom soon moved within five minutes of Anne-Marie's apartment and became very aware of her new relationship with Tom. I mean, new Mike. relationship with Mike, mm -hmm. right? Now, Tom confronted Anne-Marie on this, and he was very upset that she had been keeping a relationship secret from him. 
I'm waiting for you to be like, wait a minute, considering he was keeping two relationships secret from her. Like, she still has no idea about Debbie and Susan. But the rules don't apply to him. No, no. I hadn't even thought of yeah. So, Anne-Marie no longer desired to be with Tom, but she was still fearful of disappointing him or upsetting him. Um, she told Tom that she was with Mike, but it just wasn't that serious, you know. Behind Tom's back, she was telling friends and family that she thought Mike could be the one. Like she was really in love with him. She really liked him. Mm-hmm. And after that first conversation, Tom called Anne-Marie multiple times throughout the day and sent her emails telling her to break up with Mike. He told her that he left his wife for her, but when that didn't work, he tried bribing her with nice things like a Lexus. And then was like, we can get married, you know, trying to give her all the things that she wanted. Yeah. So she would break up with Mike and be his only. Knowing good and damn well he was not planning on... I mean, he would buy her the Lexus, but he wouldn't marry her. No. Mm-mm. Or Debbie or Susan. Yeah. Either. Now, when she continued to decline his offers, he started for real stalking her. Like, he would drive by her house often park outside of her apartment for hours and when she was at mike's he would go park outside of his house mike should have beat his ass i was about to say i would have like walked out the door and like slit his tires pulled him out of his vehicle and wrote maybe even keyed it a little bit like when all of that wasn't getting to her he started taking his children to the same Sunday mass that Anne-Marie went to. And when she changed the time that she went, Tom followed suit. <laughs> he threatened to tell the congregation of their affair that oh, they had. Oh. And Anne-Marie was embarrassed, so she Bring switched churches. That into the Lord's house, please. He knows nothing. She was... Basically being stalked by him, and Anne-Marie was fed up with it at this point. God bless her. Now, despite all of this trouble she was still having with Tom, Anne-Marie and Mike's relationship really grew. Um, They started meeting each other's families and were going on very many public dates, which is one thing Anne-Marie was excited about. I mean, unlike Tom's sleazy ass, Mike was taking her out in Wilmington, and this was a relationship that she could talk openly about. Like, it wasn't a secret. And the more she went out with Mike, and the more he, Tom, heard about Mike, Tom started throwing more insults out and telling Anne-Marie that he just didn't know what she saw in him. Whatever, dude. He threatened to tell Mike that she was a homewrecker and had broken up a family. And said he would even go a step further and tell Mike about her eating disorders, which hardly no one knew about. What a creep. Yeah. So, I mean, like... I mean, Mike had noticed Anne-Marie losing weight or, you know, kind of being on the thinner side, but she always told him, oh, it was, you know, going to the doctor for it. They can't really figure out why, but we're still going to keep trying. 
you know, she wasn't really open with him about her eating disorders at this time in their relationship quite yet. And she might have even felt embarrassed by this and felt like it could have ruined this good relationship. I mean, Mike seemed like such a good guy, so we know that he would have never let this ruin what they had, but she had no idea, so she kept this all herself, and Tom threatening to expose it was terrifying for her. No, that's horrible. For Christmas, Mike went to his family's in Rhode Island and promised Anne-Marie that he would be back by New Year's. Now, Tom knew that Mike would be leaving and tempted Anne-Marie with a trip to Spain. He told her that he had bought the tickets already and he was just going to do everything that she planned on doing because she still hadn't been able to take a trip to Spain and he knew this is something that she wanted to do so he thought he was going to be able to bribe her into hanging out with her spending time with them you know um, with this trip to Spain that she yep. had been planning and hoping for now she actually ended up turning down the gift and when she did Tom freaked out he stormed into Anne-Marie's apartment, pushed her into a wall, and started screaming in her face that if she wanted be, to be ungrateful, that he would take everything away from her that he had ever given her. And she was like, fine, I mean, take everything back, I don't care, I just want you out of my life, I want you out of my apartment, just leave. And so, Tom started running around her apartment acting like a freaking maniac, grabbing the TV, taking her clothes, and anything else he spotted that he bought, he was grabbing. I mean, he got as petty as to take a bottle of salad dressing out of the fridge. This guy is mental. For right real. Back. Now, within 15 minutes, Tom came back, apologized, and returned every single one of the items. He asked for them to go sit in the car and, you know, talk this out. Um, of course, they started arguing as soon as they got in the car, and Tom started calling her all of the bad things he usually um, started to. And when she grabbed the door handle to get out of the car, he locked the doors and grabbed her around the neck. Uh -uh. Yikes. She somehow escaped and, you know, logically was very, very frightful of her ex-lover now. At the end of December, sure. Tom went into a... Yeah. At the end of December, Tom went into a coffee shop and saw a mutual friend of his and Anne Marie's. Um, her name was Jackie. She described Tom that night as being depressed, or that day, excuse me, as being depressed, looking pale and thin. He said this was the first Christmas without his kids, and it was just hard on him. He asked Jackie if she and Anne-Marie could go out to dinner or something with him one night because he just needed to be around some friends. So Jackie went to Anne-Marie's and told her Tom was not a, a good place. He threatened suicide and she was like, he invited us to go out with him. I think we need to go. 
And Anne-Marie just was constantly like, no, I just don't think it's a good idea. Tom's fine. But Jackie kept persisting, so Anne-Marie ended up reluctantly agreeing. So Anne-Marie and Jackie ended up meeting Tom at his new place. He invites them in, and he shows them around. And then they went to dinner in Philly, where Anne-Marie was described as cordial but quiet. You know, you could tell she really didn't want to be there. When Anne-Marie got up to use the rest, Tom put on a show right. to Jackie, asking why did Anne-Marie hate him so much, when in reality, Anne-Marie did not hate him. She just wanted to continue their friendship, nothing more. She just simply moved on. But even after this, Tom would still email her, talk about the kids with her, and it usually ended the emails with, I love you, or te amo. In mid-January of 1996, Tom showed up to Anne-Marie's apartment, and she realized that she was not clear enough about their relationship. Tom tried making a move on her, so Anne-Marie ended up emailing him this the next day, saying, quote, Good morning, Tommy. I'm sorry about my outbreak last night. I am sure it must have scared you. Quite honestly, I scared myself last night, Tommy. I had a lot on my mind regarding my appointment with Gary Johnson. Right now, I need a friend more than anything. There was a part of me that just wanted to be alone to think things out clearly. So when I asked you not to rub my stomach and you responded with how much I hurt you, I couldn't take feeling guilty about that with everything else I've been feeling. It's my fault because I've been communicate. I have not been communicating with you, and you didn't know how to respond. I am sorry for my behavior. Please try and understand that right now I have some things to work out, and I don't know where to start. End quote. This is Amory emailing Tom, and the thing is, is like she. I feel bad for her. So this is what I feel like happened. Because we don't really have details on what happened between them that night in January at her apartment. But what I would assume is Tom right. showed up to her apartment. Tried making a move on her. Rubbing her stomach. Rubbing her back. Trying to kiss her neck. Whispering her. You know, some sort of an advance. And... She denied it. She probably flipped. She was like, you know, I don't know right. how many times I have to tell you that we were just friends, but, like, stop with this, you know. But then, after him leaving, she, one, one, she was either scared of him, or two, after he left, she was like, maybe I was a little too harsh. And so she felt like she needed to apologize. And this is where we see how Debbie was feeling in the situation when she left her purse at the restaurant. You know, she felt like she was having to apologize for these things that she didn't even need to apologize for. And Tom was making Anne-Marie feel the exact same way. Now, soon after, she got ready to go to Wilmington's Grand Gala Ball with Mike. But when Jill stopped over to help her get ready, she found Anne-Marie's excitement was gone. And that she had been crying. She said that Tom had found out she was going to the gala with Mike, and he had been calling her, blowing her phone up all day long, saying, you know, just threatening her and saying that he would go to the gala and hunt Mike down, and then, 
you know, it's just the same old, same old. And she said that Tom was always like this. Right. He was just psychotic, you know. Thankfully, she still ended up getting ready, still ended up going. Tom was not there. He did not make an appearance. And Anne-Marie ended up having a really good time with Mike that night. She actually ended up saying it was one of the best nights of her life. And that night was the night that her and Mike decided that they would officially become exclusive. And when she returned home that night, she felt as if she might have hurt Tom's feelings. So she ended up emailing him again Monday morning. Saying, quote, First, let me start off by saying, I am sorry for the pain I have caused you over the weekend. I am afraid I do not know where to begin. I spent a good part of yesterday morning and afternoon at Valley Garden Park thinking about a lot of stuff. Us, girls, eating disorder, my family, etc. I desperately want to talk to you, but I'm too afraid to place the call. I do love you, Tommy, no matter what happens. I will always love you, end quote. Now, when Tom Capano received this email, he wrote Anne-Marie back saying, quote, I desperately want to talk to you, too. I'll go out of my mind if I don't soon. Please don't be afraid to place the call. I need to hear your voice. I am leaving now for a meeting. Please call me. Not hearing from you since Saturday afternoon is making me crazy. You knew, You know how much I love you and need you. I still want... I, I will wait for your call, Tayama, end quote. Now, Tom and Anne-Marie continued talking back and forth for a few days, and Tom consistently tried making plans with Anne-Marie, and she kept making excuses as to why she couldn't make these plans. Now, early February, she told him that she could only give him a friendship. You know, she was very confused and at this point she couldn't offer him anything more than just a friendship now tom realized he was losing his grip on Anne marie and tried playing it cool to try and reel her back in now he said call me and let me know if you get together saturday and then he said you know i always feed you good so I thought this was like a sick little stab at her, you know. He tries to play it cool right. and says, you know, give me a call. We'll be together Saturday. You know I always feed you good. Like, get out of here. The weekend around February 8th or so, Tom paid his brother Jerry with a check for $8,000. Now, I bring this up because this is some suspicious behavior before um, some things that happen later on in the year and later on in our case. He had recently borrowed money saying a couple was trying to extort him and he was needing to pay them off. So, of course, you know, Tom has done so much for him. Jerry wasn't going to blink an eye, so... He gave Jerry the check, or, you know, he gave Tom the check and was okay with him paying him back a few days later. Now, Tom told him if anyone asked him what it was for to tell them that Jerry had just done some landscaping for him and this was just money for the landscaping job. 
Right. After paying Jerry back, yep. Tom called Anne Marie several times and drove by her apartment multiple times that day. By the end of February, Tom went to Jerry and asked for a gun for protection against the people who were extorting him. Tom chose a handgun uh -uh. even after Jerry suggested something like a shotgun, which was better for home protection. Jerry let Tom take a 10-millimeter Colt revolver. Then, once again, he asked Jerry, um, you know, for a favor. This was the last favor he was going to ask of him. He said that he might need to yep. take care of these extortionists, so he might need to borrow Jerry's bow and was wondering if it was okay. Jerry said, yeah, come get my boat if you ever need it. So, this is all very, very not good. This doesn't sound good, but, like, no one knows. This, no one has any idea what's about to happen. So, yeah. on April 7th of 1996, Anne Marie wrote in her diary, quote, I have finally brought closure to Tom Capano. What a controlling, manipulative, insecure, jealous maniac. For one whole year, I allowed someone to take control of every decision of my life, end quote. But was Anne-Marie really done with him? This would be Anne-Marie's last diary entry that she ever made. And on June 27th, people were trying to get in touch with her, you know, and they weren't able to. So, by the 28th, she ended up being reported missing. And that is where we're going to end for part one. I didn't anticipate this to be a two-part episode when I first started my research. But, surprise! <laughs> uh -huh. I, I didn't even know. Alright. I know you didn't know. Too. Come um, on. Y'all tune in next week for part two on Anne-Marie Fahey. We are going to pick up... On June 27th, 1996, Mike um, tries calling Anne-Marie a few times that day, and then the next day he tries calling her again and realizes that no one has heard or seen from her. And so that is kind of where her case begins, where she kind of goes missing and the police are going to get involved so y'all make sure y'all tune in next week to get the end of this episode and we have a nice special episode coming up on december 18th so we really really want to make sure that y'all tune in for that that's going to be a local case an unsolved case i think michelle's going to do a really great job about it and i am excited and can't wait yeah me too the um the case is riles chapman he went missing in 2013 but we love you all we thank you for listening as always rate review subscribe hit the little plus button on apple yes um 
we've been getting tons of people saying, you know, raving about the show in person, and we love it. And the reviews on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to, the reviews on that platform help boost the show to get people all over the world listening to. And that's one way you can help us for free. I also wanted to briefly mention that we do have listener support set up, so if you feel like donating, I think you can go maybe in the description bar or to our anchor page um so if you feel like donating to the show that'll help us get better um you know sound quality mics help going towards merch you know all of it goes back to the show and goes back to you so we really appreciate everybody that's listening and um make sure you follow us and hit us up on the instagram at illnaturedpod you need Facebook. to join our awesome Facebook group, Ill Natured Podcast. Um, hit us up on TikTok. We did a lot of videos for this episode. At Ill Natured Pod. And if you ever want to send us an email, I'm always willing to send you one back. Okay, and read it. Uh, it is illnaturedpod at yahoo.com. That's right, guys. And we love you all so much. We will catch you guys on the flip side. Peace.